0: Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture, and civilization. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Frederico Reo. Today I want to uh, present a rather provocative, perhaps, idea. And that's the idea that the European project is in many ways a project of conservative restoration. This of course runs counter the most widespread views about the European project, particularly in this city, in Brussels, which tend to cast, to frame the European project as a progressive project, as a radical break uh, with the past of European history, a past which was characterized by wars, uh, by uh, militant nationalism, by divisions, and instead a project that directly builds on the values of the French Revolution. Fraternité, uh, liberté, égalité, and these ideals of universal brotherhood that derive from the French Enlightenment. But is this really the correct way of framing the European project? One could argue, and I will try to argue in in this podcast, that in many ways, the European project resurrects a pre-revolutionary pattern of supranational integration, which had existed in Europe before the age of revolution and nationalism. We tend to emphasize, and this is certainly the case for visions of the French Revolution as the founding uh, myth somehow of European integration, we tend to emphasize the most uh, peace-loving and uh, universalist aspects of the French Enlightenment and the French Revolution. However, we tend to forget that the French Revolution is also Uh, the eruption of nationalism on the scene of European history, for the first time with this degree of violence and for the first time as an ideology with exclusionary uh, claims. The French Revolution is the first moment in history in which we shift from the old uh, cabinet wars which were fought by mercenary gentlemen freely offering their services to monarchs, uh, to citizens' wars, wars of conscripted citizens who had to be ready to sacrifice their life uh, in the name of the nation. La nation, la patrie, features very prominently in all revolutionary propaganda. And there is a huge body of historical literature that shows how uh, it was precisely the revolutionary wars that ignited nationalism all over the continent and particularly in Germany with the long-term consequences which we know. I would like now to reflect a little bit on what was the nature of European unity that this process of nationalization and political modernization triggered by the French Revolution destroyed. It is not easy to fully see it Because two centuries of nationalist propaganda and historiography have obscured the fact that in Europe, the whole of European civilization existed prior to the parts, to the nations. And the nations could only be understood within the framework of this common civilizational whole. What do I mean by that? We tend to forget, because our historical uh, view is very short-sighted, that. The entrance into Europe civilization after the fall of the Roman Empire for all the barbarian peoples that had destroyed the Roman Empire was basically based on two pillars. First, the acceptance of Christianity, and particularly Catholic Christianity, which was the only Christianity on offer on the European continent. And secondly, the acceptance through Christianity of the Greco-Roman heritage as absorbed and mediated and Christianized by the Catholic Church. So uh, what happened is that these peoples retained their customs, but they thoroughly Christianized them. They thoroughly adhered to these new common values of um, Christendom, as it was called. For a long time, Christendom and Europe were used as synonym uh, still at the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, There is a famous essay by Novalis, the great German poet, Christenheit oder Europa. Christianity or Europe, in which the two are basically identified. A good way, I think, to, to see this, uh, uh, this uh, abstract, somewhat abstract uh, explanation of Europe's civilization a route really embodied in something is, I uh, actually happened to me recently when I visited Malta for professional reasons. I was there for the, for the Congress of the European People's Party in last March. And I had the chance of visiting Saint John's Co-Cathedral. And what was striking in this church was that you could see this balance between the common civilization or dimension and the, the identity of the components of Europe, very strikingly and very clearly. Um, this was a Christian temple somehow, a Christian church, and therefore you had the element of Christianity, um, which w- a temple that you could have found in most, in many, or all probably European cities, from uh, Vilnius to, to Krakow, to Vienna, to Prague, to Paris. This was the first element that you could immediately notice. The second element was the the artistic heritage, again, of the Greco-Roman civilization, which was also embodied in the church. And this constituted the the common uh, civilizational heritage. But then there were the parts, there were the chapels. There are nine chapels, in the in the church one is dedicated to the blessed sacrament but the others are dedicated we would say to the nations of the time of the 16th century so there there is a chapel dedicated to auvergne a chapel dedicated to aragon one castille leon and portugal uh, an anglo-bavarian chapel uh, a chapel for france a chapel for provence a chapel for italy and most interesting a chapel for germany I personally found the chapel for Germany very interesting because it was not dedicated to Germany as the nation-state that we know today, but it was dedicated to the Holy Roman Empire. The coat of arms of Germany in that chamber were the coat of arms of the Holy Roman Empire. And the Holy Roman Empire is a supranational polity which organized the whole of Central Europe and had a claim to encompassing the whole of Christendom because it had a claim to being the secular sword of the Church and the secular realm of Christianity. So it was a p- potentially universal polity which organized Central Europe for almost one millennium as a supranational polity. And it was only this uh, member destroyed during the, r- the French Revolutionary Wars. <laughs> so this is the first part of my reflection on the the nature of the european project as a conservative restoration and it dealt with uh, the uh, the existence of a european unity civilizational and cultural unity which was destroyed and or at least weakened significantly in the age of revolution modernization and nationalism and which we tried to resurrect and reconstruct uh, from the 1950s with the european project The second part of my podcast will very briefly consider these very origins of the European project and refer to some examples that help us understand in what sense we can find clear restorative elements in in the uh, European project. The first uh, uh, issue to mention here is certainly the very origins of the European project. Contrary to conventional wisdom which tend to uh, identify the origins of the European project with uh, Spinelli's famous Man- manifesto and Totene Manifesto of 1944, the European project was born much earlier as such. It was born in the nineteen twenties when uh, uh, an Austro, uh, an Austrian Czech Count, uh, Richard Kudenov Kalergi published a book, which was very influential at the time, called Pano Europa, in which uh, he, for the first time, advocated a European supranational federation or confederation. And this was a rather conservative project in tone that came out of a rather conservative environment, the environment that had lost, again, the old supranational integration of Central Europe, to which I was referring beforehand, uh, first embodied by the Holy Roman Empire and then represented by uh, the Austro Hungarian Empire, of which uh, the Kudenov Kalergi uh, family was a prominent uh, family. Um, all throughout the 19th century, Central European conservatives had opposed nationalization because it meant the destruction of this um, supranational order, political order that existed in Central Europe. <laughs> The second example that is interesting to mention, and it's not very well uh, understood today, I think, is actually the conservative origins of the Council of Europe and the the European Conventions on Human Rights. Today, the European Convention on Human Rights is uh, seen as a progressive document. It is uh, uh, loved by all leftists de facto, uh, historically. It is, in fact a document with conservative origins. It is very well known that Churchill, Western Churchill, the British conservative leader, played an important role in framing and launching the, the convention at the Council of Europe. Uh, what is less known is that the ideology behind it, the inspiration behind it, was thoroughly conservative. The objectives uh, that conservatives wanted to secure were um, the protection of certain values and principles, which they deemed threatened at the national level by progressive leftist forces. So in the case of Great Britain, uh, the protection of property rights, which were threatened by Attlee's uh, Labour government and its uh, um, uh, all-encompassing, its ambitious plans for nationalizations. In uh, France, it was the protection of the autonomy of Catholic institutions, which were threatened by the new uh, secularist trends after the, the World War. And most importantly, when one reads the writings of the, many of the framers of the Convention and of the Council of Europe, there is clearly a nostalgia for the old supranational um, features of Christendom, for the, the jurisdiction, the supranational jurisdiction of the Church, for example, which could intervene in the business of member states and, and decide on, on specific matters of faith and morality. Um, so, t- certainly, this historical memory played a role in inspiring uh, the beginnings of the, of the Council of Europe. The third uh, restorative uh, element that one can find in uh, the early European project is certainly the vision of the Christian Democratic founding fathers. The Christian Democratic founding fathers, uh, Konrad Adenauer, uh, Robert Schumann, Alcide de Gasperi certainly were men of their time, but they were all part of this Central European world, again, which had never fully accepted the nationalization of Central Europe and which had known um, a, a previously existing pattern of supranational organization. In the case of the Gasperi, this was very clear because he was born and raised in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Adenauer was uh, a conservative from the Rhineland. Uh, there is a part of Germany which never fully digested the, the emergence of the Bismarckian Reich, or the National German Reich, with the idea that Germany was uh, the bearer of a universalist mission to unify a much broader ensemble with the Slavic people in Central Europe. Throughout the 19th century, you find speculations about a, a Mitteleuropa centered on Germany, but organized along supranational lines as a, as a federation of the Slavic and the Germanic peoples in order to avoid... Uh, nationalization in this region of Europe, which was very ethnically mixed, as we know. So I think all this plays certainly the memory of Christendom, of the Holy Roman Empire, of the old supranational Europe, the pre-revolutionary, pre-nationalist Europe, played a role in shaping the European visions of the Christian democratic founding fathers. (laughs) And finally, there is the centrality of the single market. In uh, the early steps of the European project, uh, this has very sound uh, justifications in the reality of the time. But it is also, once again, when you read, for example, Willem Ribke, very close an economist, very close to Konrad Adenauer and Ludwig Erhard, the successor of Adenauer as German Chancellor, you find the desire to restore um, the international economic integration that had existed. Uh, during the Belle Epoque at the end of the, of the 19th century. So, again, another restorative element of the European project, and, uh, another attempt to resurrect a previous pattern of political and economic organizations that have been destroyed. So I get to my conclusions. It is certainly legitimate and even uh, plausible to frame the European project as a project of conservative restoration as opposed to a leap forward into uh, a future of progress. And I think that this uh, way of framing the European project has many advantages. To begin with, it allows us to better understand the roots of European unity, to uh, plant these roots more firmly in the soil of European history and to pushed these roots much more deeply into European history than the 1950s. A second aspect is that it provides a narrative about the historical foundations of European unity and European identity. And I think this will be increasingly needed if we want a a credible uh, political unity in Europe to emerge. And third, specifically for the centre-right, I think it's a way to develop a centre-right conservative Christian democratic view Um, of the European project that can help us distinguish ourselves uh, from the other mainstream political families such as the Socialists or the Liberals. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.